The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Good evening, everyone. Bruce Barquette here with Crime and Justice Radio. Flying solo tonight, where we will talk all things murder, mayhem in the courts with expert insiders and legal outcasts. Miss Lysenring is diligently preparing a trial that we both have. I suppose I should be doing that too. But one of us, at least, had to do the radio show. We will have a four- to six-week trial starting a week from today out of town. Um, it'll be an interesting case, to say the least. We'll see how we do. So what's happening this week? We're going to have a couple different guests on. I want to ask a quiz of listeners. Uh, who's Pamela Smart? Remember Pamela Smart? She was the trial of the century before there was a trial of the century in OJ. Uh, she was convicted in 1990, New Hampshire, of uh, causing her 15-year-old boyfriend, she was a 22-year-old um, high school employee, uh, causing her 15-year-old boyfriend to murder her husband, shoot him in the head. Uh, she's always maintained her innocence. She's back in the news again. There's an article in the New York Times um, she's seeking clemency, has become a minister, and is actually serving her time in Bedford uh, Correctional here in New York. Her lawyer, Mar uh, Mark Sisti, will join us in a little bit. We're also going to talk a little um, uh, Murdoch, of course, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about the Ohio-Idaho murder case uh, that is still pending. We're waiting for the preliminary hearing, which won't take place till June. Ah, did it take so long for that? And we also have uh Ghislaine Maxwell remember her it's funny how these names right we have these people who come in they're part of our daily lexicon for months while the trials are going on and then after they're convicted and they're gone to prison we kind of forget about them but Ms. Maxwell hired uh the same lawyers that represented Harvey Weinstein at trial and appeal Arthur Idella and his team including a couple of retired judges, to perfect her appeal before the Second Circuit. She's arguing a number of things. Um, one, of course, the juror issue. The juror, as you may recall, the juror, uh, when asked in voir dire whether or not he was knew of anyone or was himself the victim of sex abuse, said no. Later, after he convicted Ms. Maxwell, came out and talked about the fact that he was a victim, and actually talked about it in a way that helped him, according to him, understand the evidence better and arguably led him to the conviction. So there was a hearing. He testified. The defense was not allowed to ask that juror any questions. And ultimately, the judge found that uh, although he testified in a way that was or testified in a way that was inaccurate, in other words, testified when he was asked those questions as a prospective juror, that that was uh, not intentional, and that even if he'd answered the questions truthfully, he would not have been excluded. They make a number of other claims, but I think that's the core claim with respect to that juror. And um, look, I don't want to speak for most observers, but from my perspective, I can't imagine how a juror who was himself the victim of sex abuse as a child could sit on a jury after having told the juror, the court, and the lawyers that he wasn't a victim, ask the question directly, were you a victim? No. Uh, it's not like something you'd forget. It's not something that slipped your mind in that kind of case. It's really stunning in some respects uh, that he 
went ahead and did that. And to me, and obviously I'm a defense attorney, so maybe my perspective is a little different. I, I was surprised that that didn't get more traction with the trial court. The law in the federal system is very tough. You you have to show that had they answered the question accurately and truthfully, they would have um, they would have um, reached a different. Uh, they would have been excused for cause, not just excused preemptively, but excused for cause. And I, look, I I don't know how the follow up questions would have gone. But I can't imagine he would have remained on the jury. One way or the other, that person was gone. And it just does not seem fair or right under the circumstances to have uh, a juror who was himself the victim of sex abuse. Never, Nobody was able to explore it with him during voir dire because he lied about it, or at least he said he forgot. So that's another matter that, that is in the news lately. Uh, and of course, we always have, <clears throat> excuse me, we always have Trump, right? He's facing indictment or investigations in three different, three different jurisdictions here in New York, uh, in the in the Southern District for his role in uh, the Stormy Daniels affair and paying her off with campaign funds. He's facing, uh, I think, an imminent indictment. I'll go out on the limb and say that in Atlanta for election interference, or, and he's facing the January sixth investigation in Washington as well as. The investigation into his refusal to turn over uh, documents uh, out of Florida. So he's got quite a problem. Uh, I mentioned this repeatedly. We've talked about it a little bit every week because there's going to come a point in time when the new trial of the century or the new case of the century is going to be the state of Georgia or the United States of America versus Donald J. Trump. And won't that be a circus, whether or not uh, you support him or you don't? Uh, it'll be unbelievably entertaining um, time. And in some ways, you kind of hope that he gets indicted in Atlanta as opposed to D.C. Federal courts don't allow cameras in the courtroom. State courts, I think, in Georgia do. So we actually get to see the trial. Um, for those observing it, I guess it would be fun. Um, for participants, not so much. Uh, not so um, not so fun. Um, but shift shift topics a bit. I want to talk a little bit about Pamela Smart. So as I mentioned, she was convicted in 1990 um, for having um, her teenage lover kill her husband, shoot him. There's actually four boys, and they were boys. They were 15, 16 years old at the time, all charged with participating in the murder, all testified against her as part of the deal, and all uh, have were convicted and are all have been out for years, for years. Now, keep in mind that the individual who actually pulled the trigger is out, out of prison. Pamela continues to face a life in prison without the possibility of parole unless she receives a um, clemency or pardon, uh, I guess, from uh, the... Uh, governor in New Hampshire. We're lucky enough to have her attorney, Mark Sisti, on the line. Mark, um, lawyer in New Hampshire, uh, defended cases, has tried hundreds of cases over the years, and was Pamela's tri trial attorney. He has been with her for 33 years. Uh, stellar reputation out of New Hampshire. One of the, the best lawyers in New England, I would say. He is joining us now to talk about his client, Pam Smart. 
Mark, welcome to Climate Justice Radio. Thanks for joining us. Mark, are you there? I'm here. I'm talking to you. Oh, okay. There we go. Sorry, I missed that. Little technical right. difficulties, but we're all good. Thanks for okay. thanks for spending a few minutes with us today. So, um, first of all, tell us the process. What, what what's going on, um, kind of logistically? How does when does Pam get a hearing? Does she get a hearing? And in front of whom? Well, New Hampshire is kind of a unique state. Uh, we have in this in this state. A governor and council. This is an old throwback um, because of the, I'll tell it straight, the hatred of the British, you know, government. Um, and what they did in order to keep the governor in check. You've been qu- carrying that grudge for quite a while. It's several hundred years. <laughs> yeah, right? well, they can carry a grudge. It's New England. Hey, I was born and raised in New England. I grew up in Connecticut, middle middle of the state, so I'm a New Englander. So they keep the governor in check with five councilors, and they're elected in different districts in the state. And the councilors are responsible for a lot of things. They they okay contracts. Uh, they do they okay nominations and appointments, uh, things like that. But one of the things that probably is one of the most important and unique is that they're responsible for pardons and commutations. And uh, that's the process that we're kind of uh, entwined with right now. So... Um... When you say entwined with, is she entitled? There seems to be some debate as to whether or not she's even entitled to a hearing at this point in time. Is she going to get a hearing, get an opportunity for uh, the commissioners or the board or whoever to vote uh, on the clemency application? Well, it's an interesting subject. The This, uh, this constitution in this state uh, basically states that the... The whole focus for incarceration is rehabilitation. And uh, actually, it, it actually almost focuses on getting the individual out of prison if they can be safe in the community. Now, Pam, however, has been convicted of first degree, and first degree in New Hampshire his life without parole, without any possibility. Now, the only reason, the only way that you can ever be released into society is to have the governor and council grant you a pardon or a commutation. And the argument for Pam is that in a case from 1978 in our Supreme Court, it was established that the only reason life without parole is constitutional in our state is that we have a governor and council that can actually effect a release. If if she was forever condemned, then that would be unconstitutional. Hmm. Uh, interesting. So talk a little bit about the merits of this. I know from uh, New York Times carried a nice piece about this, I think, on Saturday. 
uh, and they said she is, she sounds like she is the, I don't know, they, they call her a den mother, but I think that's a little condescending and dismissive. It sounds like she is the, the kind of a the, the heartbeat of the prison up there, um, is a ordained minister, counsels individuals, and serves on the um, board of, for the prisoners or represents them in front of the prison and has been doing so forever. Well, you know, it's interesting that you said that she's uh, that she's so important in the prison up there. Well, up here, she's not in prison. She's in prison in, in New York, in Westchester County. Well, for us, us Long yeah. Islanders up there, <laughs> is anything north of the Bronx and yeah, Bedford? Well, I've been there a few times. It's not that far up, offense. but it's north of the Bronx. <laughs> I used to take great offense having been born and raised in Buffalo. <laughs> All right. We were yeah, called right. Upstate. <laughs> yeah, Upstate is everything north of Westchester, for sure. Uh, you're right. She's in Bedford. So she's right. doing doing well in prison is kind of an oxymoron to me. Um, but, but she's done quite well. I mean, she's gotten a couple of degrees, graduate degrees. She's a minister. Uh, she counsels other inmates. Uh, she's on the, the – it's a uh, – She's on the inmate liaison. She, she does all this stuff. But let me, let me say, you know, you've been a criminal defense attorney for years and years. I've been a criminal defense attorney for 44 years now. She is, without a doubt, so ex extraordinary with regard to her accomplishments, uh, her behavior in the prison, and letters that you get from uh, former superintendent, uh, correctional officer, uh, everybody that she's ever been engaged with in education. This is a woman that literally saved, saved inmates. And I'm not saying that in some weird way. I'm talking about going into jail cells, lifting them up while they're hanging, and screaming for correctional officers to cut them down. This is not this is not the, your usual situation. And uh, this is what we want to present to the council. And they continue to I think they continue to say no because they're afraid to look redemption and rehabilitation in the eye. It, it really is stunning to me that uh, individuals are so caught up in their particular kind of role in life and position, almost as if if you're a prosecutor or you're an attorney general, that agreeing that someone has been rehabilitated after 33 years, uh, given, look, she's earned two master's degrees, a doctorate while in prison, she's a minister, done all the things that you said, admitting that somehow she's been rehabilitated and is not a threat to society, she's not going to hire some other kid to kill her next husband. It's just crazy that somehow that, that makes them less of who they are. It's, well, I have, it's, to, I have to interrupt because I was having this conversation today with a couple of my assistants at, at the office. And I said, who would you rather have living next door to you? Pam Smart or some young man that forced a human being to his knees and executed them like a like an animal. Who would you rather have out? 
ones that actually executed him, the ones that gave him or could have given him life instead of death, are out there now. You're talking about the four boys or teenagers who actually no, participated I, 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 in the murder. I'm not saying and, boys. They, they well, were they certified were, as They adults. were kids. They were 15 years they, old. The person were, who pulled the trigger young. was 15. They were young, but they were, i got to tell you something, they had more street smarts and toughness than Pamp Smart ever saw in her life. So, yeah, no, I, I, and obviously they had the wherewithal, whatever that takes to execute somebody in that instance. Um, why is she in New York? And the lawyer in me makes me want to ask, does that give New York some jurisdiction over her or some possibility of letting her out? You know, that's an interesting interstate compact question. Uh, she's being programmed and directed and taken care of by New York DOC. Um, and she should be, she should really be entitled to all of the rights and benefits of a New York prisoner. And if she really is entitled to those benefits, then we should be going to your governor and, and we should be making our case to your governor. But we should really exhaust these, you know, these avenues in New Hampshire. They should give her a hearing here and, and it should be so transparent so that the people of New Hampshire can see exactly who she is instead of wading through these myths about her and these fantasies about her, these movies about her, these novels about her. I mean, it's an absurd situation. And you say murder. There, there was sex lies and murder uh, with um, Nicole Kidman, I think. Um, to die to, for. Uh, to die for was with Nicole Kidman. Um, yeah. And it, it, it really, they. I mean, obviously, it's a two-dimensional um, portrayal of somebody that means nothing. Uh, but I, she was. I mean, I recall, I was a prosecutor in 1990 when this case happened. And I recall mm -hmm. it. And I recall the portrayal of her then. Um, and it really, in the public's eye, has never changed. The work that you're doing in kind of getting the public to, to see her in a different light, I think will help. Uh, what's it been like to represent somebody for 33 years? Hmm. I, I would say that um, justice, as you know, some, sometimes it's a sprint, sometimes it's a marathon. This is an ultra marathon. And um, we're going to get her out. She's got to stay tough, though, because she's doing all the right things. Um, and she knows she's facing a very, very difficult situation. It's a, it's a headwind. and um, But I think that she is so much different now than when I first met her. Um, it's amazing. It, one of the things that, that comes up, not just with Pam Smart, but with a number of different people, is the the system tells them if you admit that you did this, take responsibility and express remorse, we'll consider letting you out. But for the individuals who didn't commit the crime but got convicted anyway, and we know those people are out there, uh, they're not permitted to – or they, they, they don't get out. And I, I her quote on the Times like, really struck me. She says, they're trying to box me into confessing to a crime I didn't commit. So if I say I'm a cold-hearted killer, they're going to let me out. 
But if I say I'm rehabilitated, you won't, they won't let me out. And she takes responsibility for having an affair or, or some relationship with this boy or this teenager, thus causing her husband's death, but says, I didn't ask them to go murder him. How, ha how have you, I don't want to say how have you counseled her, but how has she confronted that particular uh, dilemma? We have about 40 seconds left. Okay, she's, con she's confronting it with honesty. But it's even worse than what she portrays it. Because if she says, okay, I take full responsibility and I did everything you said I did, then you get the response, you're just saying that to get out. And, and if she stands up and says, I'm rehabilitated, then they say, well, you're not rehabilitated until you admit to everything we say. So it's worse than what Pam portrays. Mark, that's the music that has, tells us we have to let go. Thanks very much for joining us. Good luck on this. If there's anything we can do here in New York, let me know. Let our firm know. Okay, we have I appreciate it. Thank you. Looking for clemency out of that same prison. Take care of yourself. Welcome back to Crime and Justice Radio. Bruce Barquette here. I know you all are used to that very pleasant voice of Aida Lysenring, who usually introduces the show and joins us, um, but she is otherwise occupied tonight. Uh, we have a, we being Aida and I, and actually two other lawyers, one from Portland and one from Pennsylvania, are trying a uh, complex federal homicide and narcotic conspiracy trial in the federal court up in White Plains, and one of us had to do the show, and one of us had to prepare or continue to prepare, so she decided to continue to prepare, and I said I would soldier on with the show and get back to the preparation as soon as we're done. Um, we're going to chat this half hour about Alex Murdoch, uh, kind of anticlimactic in the way it ended. It, it was um, – all that drama, all that testimony, all those weeks, and the jury basically didn't even stay for dinner and got the case and within three hours convicted Mr. Murdaugh uh, of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced shortly thereafter to life without parole, and on we go to the next case. And I think one of the upcoming cases that we're certainly going to follow is the matter in Idaho where Brian Kohnberger has been charged with murdering uh, several students in Moscow, Idaho, and I want to talk a little bit about that, as well as Alex Murdoch's case. We're going to be joined uh, right now by Stephen Barrick, who is a criminal defense attorney out of California. He has tried 200 jury trials, dozens of felonies, appears on national television regularly to comment on different uh, matters, including on Fox News. Uh, outstanding lawyer. We're lucky to have him to talk about these cases. Stephen, welcome to Crime and Justice Radio. I'm sorry that Ms. Lysenring is not with us tonight. You'll just have to settle for me. <laughs> not a problem. Thanks for having me. Happy to. So, um, I got to just give me your take on Alex Murdoch. Well, look, I, I think so. Prior to becoming a criminal defense lawyer, I was a district attorney for a number of years. And the most powerful evidence I think any prosecutor has is when you can show the defendant lied. And I think what really, really uh, did him in in this case was the fact that he lied to police. 
that's a killer. And it's a reason, it's a reason why the prosecutor hit on that fact in his opening closing and in his rebuttal. Uh, it was an extremely powerful piece of evidence. And, um, I think it, at the end of the day, it's, it's really what met, made the, the verdict so quick, in my opinion. He's kind of stuck with the lie, right? I mean, his testimony on the stand, um, he had to admit he had lied, but he was stuck with the lie from the testimony because he had lied to the police about when he arrived at the scene and only had to come up with a different account of things once they uh, he found out that they had a recording, I think, from his son's phone. So the attorneys are a little bit in a box there, right? What do you do? Do you have him put him on the stand to explain the lie? Do you try to explain it in summation? And I think you're right, though. I think that the, the jury, once they hear that kind of lie, I think he's done. I, I kind of thought he was done yeah. anyway. but Yeah, I think, anytime, I think anytime you're dealing in a case where the vast majority of homicides are committed by people uh, who the victims know, I think by percentage, it's about 80%. And then when you couple that with the fact that he's lying about when he... Uh, you know, appears at the scene. He's an attorney himself. I mean, it's very clear that the jury had no problems figuring this case out. It, it, I mean, in terms of three-hour verdicts, I mean, that's pretty much a slam dunk. That's not even a hard one when you've had multiple weeks of testimony and the jury comes back that quickly. That's, you know, no one believed him. and no, And it appeared no one liked him myself on our our next trial but um three hours is embarrassingly quick uh, not that keeping a jury yeah. out long and and um having a client convicted has him has the client res end up in a better place um but when you get convicted that fast it's kind of like getting blown out in a sporting event you just was never close you didn't do a very good job at all yeah, I don't think it's these attorneys. I feel bad for them. Uh, we've all been there with cases that are really, really tough. But the strategic decisions they made obviously weren't weren't the right ones. Right, I agree. I I don't think this was going to be an easy case for the defense lawyer, but um, it, it's very clear they didn't do a very good job, and I don't think he's going to do well on appeal and. I think it's clear he's going to be spending the rest of his life and in, incarcerated. I'd Murdoch for just a second and kind of going to the general topic of, of defending individuals. Obviously you do it. We do it. I was a prosecutor too in another life, um, you know, 40 years ago or so. So it's been quite a while, but I, I vaguely recall seeking convictions. Um, but becoming a defense attorney, a couple of tough calls. One is do you, do you advise your client to testify or not? How do you go about making that kind of decision? Um, and how do you, how do you present that? Well, so I've never found it to be very difficult. I, I always, you know, there are several factors I look at. I think one, it's a lot of it depends on the strength of my case. I think two, um, it depends on whether or not, my client has made any statements to the police. Um, and I think three, and finally, it depends a lot on the client, him or herself. I, I think in this case, um, they had some tough things to deal with. 
from a positive perspective, he's he was he is an attorney, and I think there was a thought that he potentially could testify well on the stand. But you know, and I think they were kind of boxed into a corner because of the fact that he had lied. Um, I think they almost had to have him testify, but it just it went really it went really poorly for him. So it's a real tough. I think any time you you put your client on the stand to testify in trial, a, a lawyer feels like they're forced to because the prosecution has a good case. If you think their case is somewhat weak and you can just sit uh, in your chair and, and poke holes in their case and get a not guilty that you would much prefer to do that because you're kind of playing with house money at that time. But I think from a defense perspective, if you feel like your case is going to be a struggle or it has issues, it's almost like you're forced to put him on, you know? So I think that's what happened in this case. And then, and it blew up in their face. I, I, and it's hard to tell. I mean, my, my view is that what ends up happening with, with a client to testify is whatever the court or everyone says about the burden of proof, that all goes out the window. And once the defendant gets on the stand, the only real question that the jury asks in their mind is whether or not they believe the defendant. Um, right. And if they don't, uh, he's he or she is through. And I, one of the things I tell my clients is if they're going to testify, look, it's got to be perfect. Not that you have to say everything perfectly, not that your demeanor has to be perfect, but you can't get caught in a single lie. It, it's just you, you, I, I call it for my clients, the one lie rule. You get caught in one lie, big or small, you're done. Pack up your bags and go right. home. Or pack up your bags and go to prison, you're not going home. <laughs> right. But they're going to the pack the bags for you. I'm sorry? They're going to pack your bags for you. Yeah, they're going to pack Exactly. And, and I, that's, that, that's the difficulty is, is it really, I recall doing a trial a number of years ago, long time ago, where both sides, I mean, my defendant, my defendant, my client ended up testifying and it was sort of a self-defense case. So I, I kind of had to put him on. Uh, it was hard to get the, even the jury charge without him testifying that he was in fear. And the testimony from the other side was terrible. There were all kinds of inconsistencies. It was awful. And my client, frankly, wasn't that much better. And I tried to argue to the jury that it didn't matter whether or not you believed our client. It wasn't, you didn't have to choose between two meals. You had to pick, decide whether or not the prosecutor's meal was, you know, good enough beyond a reasonable doubt. And I remember the prosecutor saying, of course he wants you to look at our meal because he doesn't want you to see the slop on his table. And sure enough, the jury convicted um, pretty quickly, not in three hours, but pretty quickly. Um let, let's move on to, I want to chat a little bit, if we can, about um, Brian Kornberg, which is kind of out in your neck of the woods for us New Yorkers. It's a, yeah. a lot closer to you than it is to us. Um, That's true. It, it, have, now, look, the, the information here has been leaking out a little bit at a time. Uh, the thing that I keep waiting for is some kind of forensic evidence that connects him to the crime, not to the area, not the stalking. Not to calls, not to driving, not to all the other nonsense, but to the murders. Some, have you seen anything like that yet? So what I've seen, and from what I've heard now, um, I don't know what has changed in the last three weeks, but I, you know, spent a lot of time talking about this case when he was first arrested. 
And my recollection that the most powerful piece of evidence now, and I don't know if this is rumor, uh, that they found was there was a sheath left, you know, a knife sheath left at the scene that had his DNA on it. Now, that I don't know if the status of that evidence has changed since then, but that, that was being reported about three to four weeks ago. And if that's true, that's particularly damning, um, you know, because he has no... He has no reason to be in that house that we know of. There's no relationship between him and any of the victims. So if his DNA is located in the house on a sheath or a weapon that appears to have been used in the murder, uh, he's he's got problems. But that that, to my recollection, there is that piece of evidence. But that's the only piece that I've heard of so far. So uh, one of the things that the they did is they they obviously seized his car and they essentially took it apart. Um, right. obviously th- this must've been a horrific, uh, scene. I haven't, I haven't looked at, or I haven't, I don't know if they've been available any of the crime scene photographs. They're usually not, um, publicly available anyway, but individuals, blood spatters uh, all over the place. Even if you think you, you don't have anything on you, you do. It's, it's terrible analogy, but it's like eating a bowl of pasta with red sauce on it. And you're not, you know, you kind of, you, you look down your shirt and like, how did that happen? Where did that spot come right. from? Um, and, and he's going to end up, whoever committed this crime is going to end up with blood on them. And then they go back and get in the car. And everybody can recall, I don't know if everybody can, but I can recall OJ, um, you know, he killed two people with a knife, um, allegedly. Uh, and his truck was covered. And I say covered, not painted with blood, but it had blood stains all over it. Because, of course, the blood is fresh. You get back in your car. And it ends up on places that you can't imagine it was on. So if they're taking apart that car, I want to see whether or not there's uh, any of the victim's blood in the, in the vehicle. Yeah, I think that's going to be pretty interesting. I think um, if you were a couple of interesting things to that, if I was a prosecution, if they don't find that evidence, what I would argue is, one, you know, it was several weeks before they located him, several months, one. Two, when they were surveilling him at his father's home, they saw him, you know, there was a lot of evidence that he had been cleaning that car in a lot of, in a lot of, you know, detail. And the fact that, you know, he, he had a background in criminology, I think he was getting his master's, so he would know exactly what to clean. But I, I, I think, you know, we've both done enough of these cases that no matter how well you, you clean those cars there or, or, you know, cleanup for evidence. There's always something. So if I were the defense, that's the argument I would make. I would say, look, I mean, you would expect to see something. Um, as it relates to, you know, DNA, it's that, I forget the terminology, but it's the DNA they have is being, you know, pieced together through, you know, his father, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know if they've Gotten a warrant I think the, D- the DNA. DNA evidence regarding the knife sheath or the, the container for the knife is that the, the, the sheath itself was found in trash, but a button that matched that was found at the crime scene, and they tied oh, the in the trash to his father and the button to the sheath. So it's a right. it's a little more convoluted. Attenuated. At least that's what I'm that's yeah. what I'm reading. Yeah, so I think that that state of the evidence has evolved over the last month or so. I, you know, look, I think um, 
to me, that case is going to be tougher to prove than people imagine. You know, they talk about the cell phone tower evidence and, you know, my understanding of that type of evidence, it's, it's not, I mean, it's quite, you know, uh, the, the pinging of the cell towers can be quite large of an area. And, and if I recall it, his university dorm room was four to five miles away from the home. So he didn't live drastically far away. Uh, it's that case is a, you know, it's a true circumstantial evidence case. I think part of the, you know, the, as you know, motive isn't necessarily a element of a crime, but for jurors, it's certainly powerful. I think that's what was helped convict Mr. Murda. There was a perceived mur- uh, motive in this other case. That's the difficulty for the prosecution, right? There is no discernible motive. Now, I would submit to you, I think if he committed that crime, he may uh, have some sociopathic tendency. Well, let's put it this way. Whoever committed that crime, in my opinion, has sociopathic tendencies. So they have a motive. I just don't think it'll be a, a logical motive like you and I would assume. You know what I mean? Like it's uh, I yeah. had a horrible... Or rage, or something like that. It, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's interesting yeah. to watch the the publicity surrounding this, and you know, I'm sure you've dealt with these kinds of cases where you have a client charged, and there really is this orchestrated campaign to leak negative information about the defendant to the press, so that the portrayal of the individual is horrific. So they have all the um, all these articles about how he's made women feel uncomfortable, how he's stalked other people, how he's done different things. And even the the testimony or the, the evidence that he wanted to be a police officer, that he was looking um, at crime labs and forensics, makes him sound like he was, uh, you know, somebody who was trying to fulfill some fantasy of killing a number of individuals and seeing if he could get away with it. Um, it, 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 I don't know how the def- and there's somewhat of a res- uh, restriction, some kind of gag order there where they can't talk about the case. What do you do in cases like this as a defense attorney? How do you combat that uh, kind of tidal wave of bad press? Yeah, that's a that's a real tough one. I I, I think it's on, um, you know, I think it's unfortunate and borderline unethical. Um, you know, it's. Obviously, I think the defense will be looking at a change of venue motion, obviously, which I think in light of the widespread notoriety of the case, I don't know if there's anywhere in Idaho that this case could be moved to where he would get a purely um, fair trial. I think assuming that you're not able to accomplish that, I, I think as as a defense lawyer, you have to be very thorough and careful in for dire when you're going through jury selection to talk about things. And then I think, uh, you know, you look at ways that, you know, you can use this against the prosecution, meaning, you know, what I always like to do in a case is, you know, there's the beyond a reasonable doubt standard, but, you know, anytime a lawyer sets an expectation in prior to the case or an opening statement, I always make, you know, I always keep notes of what they promised to deliver. And every time the prosecution fails to deliver, I point that out as an example of 
they misled you. They didn't tell you the truth. They they didn't meet their burden. So, you know, it's it's interesting, like, it's good news, bad news for the prosecution. You leak all that stuff out, but if they can't prove that stuff, um, then it can go against them. The problem, I think, in that case, and I could be wrong, but just initially in, in, in looking at it and looking at the evidence and hearing a little bit about this individual, you know, he's certainly, in my mind, he doesn't appear to be a person that I would have testify uh, because you may, he, he may go into dark places that uh, he can't come out of. Um, I could be wrong on that, but... Uh, I, I, he, well, look, they certainly leaked, or there's certainly enough information out there to lead one to that conclusion. So, uh, right. and entirely possible. Steve, I, I want to thank you for coming on and chatting with us about this. Hopefully you'll come back and My talk pleasure. to us again as as events warrant. Uh, good luck with your work out in California. Uh, maybe we have a few listeners out there that the they tell us we have more listeners on the on the internet than we do on on the radio, which is the radio range is limited to Long Island. But the internet's obviously international. But thanks very much for coming on, and we really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it, and I hope the Islanders make the playoffs and have a good run. I'm a Rangers. I'm a Rangers fan, but I don't mind for the Islanders. Well, else or not? On to baseball season is coming up, so we'll we'll see it. We'll talk to you again. Thank you. So uh, that's it for Crime and Justice Radio. Almost, I gotta tell everybody that for the next several weeks, you're gonna get guest hosts that'll be great. Some from our firm, Kevin Kieran will be here. But once we start this trial, Aida and I, we're going to take a little bit of a hiatus from Crime and Justice Radio. We'll be back afterwards, and maybe we'll do a little post-mortem on, on the case that we tried. We'll see how it goes. The evidence in the case, I have to admit, is substantial. At least it appears substantial, and uh, some might describe it as overwhelming. But we'll, we'll see uh, how it plays out. Uh, pleasure being with you tonight, and if you want to hear more of our shows that are on our firm's website, BarquetteEpstein.com, click on, click on the Crime and Justice Radio tab, and of course you can always contact us at BarquetteEpstein.com. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you on the other side of a long and tough trial. Take the views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.